Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Premier Crew. We are absolutely delighted to welcome our guest onto the show today, Aaron Jolly. Uh, Aaron is part of the winemaking team at London's first urban winery uh, called London Crew. Um, They're based in West London, uh, right next to West Bromden Tube Station. So I'd highly advise checking them out, taking a little tour. And they've really been setting trends since they started. Since their inception, a number of other urban wineries have been set up across London. And they continue to do so with innovations in the cellar, uh, the vineyard. And now they're just an exciting part of the English wine scene. Um, We've got an awesome episode today. We're going to be discussing uh, Aaron's journey into winemaking. We're going to be uh, going through the story of London Crew. And then also just looking at the state of play of English wine generally. uh, And also tasting three of London Crew's wines, which I am super excited to try. Before we get into that, Aaron, how are you? Very well. Yeah, made it to North London. (laughs) Um, Despite the chalk farm detail. Yeah, I went via chalk farm. I don't know why, but uh, yeah, we've just finished harvest. So I've been in the cellar in Fulham for the last five, six weeks, every day. Um, a lot of CO2 in there. So it's good to get out of that <laughs> environment, out of the out of the winery and uh, take a trip to North London. It feels like a very exotic trip to me right now. So delighted to be here. So thanks for having me, gents. Well, well that's great. What I suggest we do uh, just to chill out and set the tone uh, is to just try some wine. Um, and we're going to start with one of uh, London Crew's wines. It's the Bacchus. Um, so it's 100% Bacchus, I think, from the 2022 vintage. Um, Aaron, do you want to just quickly talk us through this wine and maybe start with the grape variety, Bacchus? What, what, what do you think of it? Yeah, so firstly, it's a, it's a, it's a hugely important grape variety for the UK. Well, as it's, it's, it's wine GB. GB is as it's known rather than UK because... Scotland isn't producing much uh, at the moment, but um, <laughs> maybe in a few years. Maybe in a few years of change. global warming. But yeah, well, so we're, we're looking at let's let's talk about English wine and focus on English wine. This is a Germanic uh, variety, and a lot of the early planting. And when we say early, it's a blink of an eye. It's the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, whenever commercial planting is taking place. Uh, the first wave of uh, varietals that were brought into this country. Uh, tended to be Germanics. And Bacchus is probably arguably the one that's had the um, best, it's bedded down best, and it's had the best affinity with the market. It was made in a lab in Germany in 1933, and it's a cross between Riesling, which we all know and love, and Sylvaner. And it has wonderful uh, aromatic uh, qualities, um, very similar, and you know, to, to to Sauvignon Blanc, which I'm unashamedly say, you know, it's nothing wrong <laughs> with that. Yeah, it's it's very pronounced. It jumps out of the glass. It has lots of these kind of green notes, um, as we described earlier. It's kind of an English hedgerow. So think of things like gooseberries. Um, and like Malik from like apple, green apple, fresh green apple, nice and tart. And some almost into the kind of nettly um, herbaceous notes as well. And in riper vintages, it can lean towards um, some tropical fruit as well. Um, and then in cooler uh, vintages, it's a little bit more on the kind of green spectrum. Um, wonderful wine. It's now the most planted still variety in the UK. And we have great success selling it to restaurants. Um, it's particularly food friendly. Anything you squeeze lemon and lime on, Bacchus will go with. 
for us, we firmly believe this is a type of direction that this country needs to go in. Embrace what you do well. We make the best Bacchus in the world. That's because the Germans aren't interested in making it because they've got all sorts of other varieties mm, that mm. take precedent over it. But because of that, we've embraced it and we've taken on. And in my view, yeah, this is the, some of the most exciting and definitely some of the most qualitative Bacchuses are found in this country. So yeah. that's something to get behind. <clears throat> Yeah, I love, I love that line of like, embrace what you do best. Um, we can already start to hear your passion for wine. Uh, let, let's get on to that. Um, when did you start to develop a passion for wine and, and figure out what you do best? Yeah, it's, uh, it wasn't like a clear journey. I think a lot of people, you know, I, I always hear these people and they're like, they knew what they wanted to do from a young age and they followed it through. And that's definitely not for <laughs> how my path was. <laughs> Um, w- one of the early um, exposures and a, and, a, and a factor was my mom actually moved to the south of France um, when I was about 11 years old. Um, and I, I think I remember journeying over there, <coughs> being there. We used to do a lot of our family trips in France and she was a big fan of Bordelais wines and Chablis. And I, I remember as a kid having, you know, Bordeaux boxes under our feet in the backseat of the car and we'd be sitting there driving around to different vineyards, you know, and, and that was a, that was a real privilege. And I, and I always just remember vineyards being, you know, they were big, expansive green places that tended to have beautiful uh, chateaus or houses and spaces. And people were always very welcoming in it. And, you know, I wasn't drinking at 10 or 11 in spite of my uh, <laughs> genetics, my Irish liver. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, we continued to keep that tradition going. And I stayed in Ireland. I, stayed, I was in boarding school in Ireland and I stayed there. But on my summer holidays, I'd go back to France and, you know, we would travel around different traditional wine growing regions. And I think as, as a small family, it was just my, my brother and, and myself and my mom, we tended to celebrate uh, through fine dining. So, you know, any special occasion, we would pick out a Michelin restaurant uh, be it in Ireland or in France. And, you know, that's where we would have our most fond memories. And and I always, even even at a young age, my mom would buy a nice bottle of wine and she would give us a taste of it with our food. And I always really loved the ceremony with it. And I loved the fact that, you know, you were elevating what is effectively a fuel, you know, to keep us alive, you know, fine dining and the Michelin scene turned it into this just wonderful immersive experience and um i i really enjoyed it and i think the psalms particularly in some of the french restaurants you visited you know they kind of the way they held their course and they were always really well respected and they had this kind of knowledge maybe that the other front of house staff didn't maybe not on par with the chef but they definitely were leading that kind of uh, front of house team and yeah watching old vintages being decanted and with the candles and the ceremony with it just kind of got into me and uh, always really enjoyed it. And I think the natural progression was, I was definitely, I mean, I don't like that word foodie. What does it mean to be a foodie? You like food, but <laughs> or, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, there is people like what Margaret Thatcher who famously just, you know, resented eating and saw it as an inconvenience. I definitely, I'm, you know, I'm the opposite end of that. I take great pleasure in it. And I think going then into university, I, I started off on a natural science degree and then as I was studying, I was doing quite a lot of botany and geology 
and there's all these natural. It was it was yeah. it was there. You 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 really are kind of understanding the vine. And I think the nice thing about wine and what I got really interested in it was was the history. And, and and I think I missed a history and I missed the cultural side because when you're on a science degree, it's very nine to five, seven days a week. And all my mates who were doing, on the humanities side of the campus, you know, they would do, you know, three hour lectures a week and kind of be giving nice reading lists. And I think wine was a bit of a, it balanced out. It kind of kept me on the course with my sciences, but it gave me, I was, I was reading a lot more about Georgia, you know, the journey of wine through Greece, North Africa, and the, the Romans, and all, all, and I was really enjoying that, and uh, tuned into you know Oz Clark and Hugh Johnson, obviously yeah. is a great educator, and loved a lot of what they were doing, and read a lot of literature on it, and then from there, I I was I, I took a year out, went back back in Australia, and I was lucky enough to end up down in the morning to Peninsula and did some fruit picking. Which is which was harvest, you know. Mm. So well, got, what what got, was that like, sort of during the uh, Australian? Yeah, I mean, it was you know, very, under the Australian sun, pretty warm. Or yeah, was it all for, right? a, for a paddy, it was pretty warm. <laughs> yeah, to hide. Um, I definitely didn't have the jeans for it, but uh, Mornington was was considered the yeah, kind of a cooler climate area within the context of Australia. But yeah, it's bloody hot. I mean, that's that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, it's backbreaking, pretty hard work. But I was young enough to enjoy it and the camaraderie that came with this and that kind of ignited my passion. And then we actually ended up going over to Tasmania and I got a taste for what was cool climate. We're talking about 2000, you know, around 2000. So, you know, mm-hmm. it was quite a while ago. It wasn't really on the map like it is now in the last 20 years. It's become a bit of an iconic area, but I was going around there and I got to taste some wines, came back to Europe and straight away, I just went to uh pre-rat uh, across the border from where my mom was based in France and uh, as I just got into as many vintages that I could. I worked at, at uh, a, a vineyard there as well and I kind of made it my mission, you know, on my summers off, I'd kind of supplement, you know, what I was doing with working in, in, in vineyards. But I didn't see it as a career. It was always a side, a side to, 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 to the sciences. And then I... Um, because how, how do you sort of, I guess... Yeah, how, how do you make that jump? Because I think, you know, even to us, you know, we, we love wine, that's why we're doing a podcast, but moving from wine and food enthusiast to, I know through your sort of university years, there were some linkages that enabled you to make the jump, but it's mm. quite something sort of becoming winemaker from mm. enthusiast, Yeah, you know? Yeah, I think it's, it, it's against all uh intuition logic it's it's following your heart and not your head and it, yeah you know straight out of college most of my friends were going on to work in the environmental protection agency or they worked with shell oil or contracts with environmental agencies and i decided to work in, in a michelin restaurant so you know you got your you definitely got your parents and your friends going what what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> um and you know it was 80 hour weeks and you're doing the double shifts and but i found food service and wine was what i first wanted to do and then i was like you can get you can get access to uh, a lot of um a much broader spectrum than if you go directly into the vineyards where you become quite narrow and I decided that I wanted to pursue being a sommelier first and then revert back towards some more of the agricultural practices, mm-hmm. which is quite different than a lot of people. I think both of us at London Crew, Alex is the head winemaker. He, you know, he's the main man. Uh, he's uh, today's 
pretty exhausted. So he goes down to the vineyards as well. Uh, while I tend to stay just in the in the winery, he's got a background in viticultural management as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's he's but he was a geologist first in Australia. So we both you know between us we've got you know I've got geology. So he's got the firm foundation on that environmental science. We had a lot of crossover. It, it definitely helps. But yeah, he had a career for 10 years working in mines in Australia and Papua New Guinea and stuff like that. Uh, wow. And then he came back into winemaking through, uh, he studied in Montpellier and then he studied over in Piedmont as well. So I've basically gone in learning through him. He's the guy. So a bit like with chefs, you, you know, you, you, you target a chef that you want to work with. The Michelin restaurants, you get young kids coming into the kitchen and they, they'll stay there. The pay's not great, but you're there to learn from a master and, you know, pick up on techniques. And to be honest, it was only very in re- recently. This year is the, even though I've done, you know, like two and a half vintages at London Crew, this is the first one where I've kind of really got stuck in with, you know, I've got my notebook out and it's it's getting serious and doing, representing him in the winery, doing all the pump overs, you know, with from grape picking. He's down in the vineyard. And then the fruit will arrive and we're doing everything together. And yeah, you just learn, you know, you learn from him, learn from a master, learn from someone who's really well respected. It's a small team, many hats. We do everything. Yeah. Like Alex is, yeah, you know, his title is head winemaker, but the guy writes a meal, mean email campaign and he's really good at customer <laughs> service. He'll pick up the phone. He also Is that the emails we're, gonna, we're getting then? Oh, on you, our inboxes would they be those I, I do them now but he's in a middle <laughs> okay. but, but yeah he does contribute he's a he's a he's yeah, we, we've actually seen a, <laughs> a, we've yeah. seen a market improvement in the emails no I'm joking yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. sorry Alex <laughs> no he's he, he, he's, he's, he's it's, it's very unusual to get that and I, I come from a service first kind of flip side where he he's a bit more of a straight shoot winemaker and it, typically you know it, you know, and, and that's their job they kind of tend to be guys who are quite focused on the seller and you know um but alex is is a real uh, a real 360 skill set but yeah no it's uh it's 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 uh, it's yeah so look it's a it's it's been a very my journey into wine is 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 uh it's been quite a meandering mm-hmm. uh, a path and i think ultimately but- for me it'll be it'll be winemaking um in a warmer climate. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. That's what I'll seek out. Not, not in, uh, yeah, London in the dreary months of winter. Maybe not London, yeah. We'll <clears throat> yeah. see. Good for now. But... No, I think that's, uh, um, that's really cool. And also, it's, it's, I think what's really cool from that is how, as you say, you, you, you didn't know exactly what you wanted to do when you were mm. growing up, but how yeah. part of your upbringing and those unique experiences where you're following your head rather than your heart have yeah. kind of uh, allowed you, I guess, and enabled you to to become part of the the London Crew team because yeah. your CV by this point is sounding, you know, pretty cool. There can't be that many, you know, Aaron Jolly's out there with a similar, you know, with a similar story. Um, and we what we want to do is kind of just talk in a bit more detail about London Crew. I know we've touched on it, um, and you made the link between Robeson wine and London Crew. Are you wanting my glass? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We'll explain this wine in a second, but um, yeah, I think one of the things that we're wanting to do is just yeah get more into that and. I suppose just for for listeners or viewers that don't know, could you just explain the link between uh, Robeson Wine and London Crew? What do they do? Which came first? And then we'll get into how London Crew was sort of 
was was born. Sure, yeah, no, it's uh, the link, the missing link. It's one man. Um, you know, he's a great guy. Uh, he's a legend in the wine industry uh, here in the UK. Fifty years as an independent, yeah, eighty-three years old. So an octogenarian boss by the name of Cliff Roberson. And again, yeah, I suppose similar to me, different time, but he was working post-war um, Britain. So probably like post-Brexit Britain, <laughs> Sure, probably sure. similar cost of living crisis and all sorts of things. But um, he ended up finding a, a niche. I think everyone who's successful kind of does that. And his niche was Chilean wine. And he became the first person to import Chilean wine into the UK. So anyone who's oh, wow. enjoying Chilean wine can thank Cliff Roberson for he laid the bringing it to these one. shores. Yeah. Cliff's the man. Cliff's the man. And apparently <clears throat> I never got to go on a trip with him, but I, I know there's a few stories. Mark Andrew, who uh, is obviously with Noble Rot now, used to work as a head wine buyer for uh, Roberson Wine. And I know that from his era, the stories of like, you know, they've gone on trips and, you know, apparently when Cliff came to Chile, like they'd roll out the red carpet and you know, he's, yeah, yeah. he's treated like a demigod over there for the well, amount well of business. Well-deserved by the sounds of it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, I mean, it was different business to what he runs now. He was importing, you know, he worked on in cases. To this day, he doesn't ever use a unit of bottles. Everything is cases. And he was selling millions of cases of wine. And it wasn't about, it was, you know, you're, you're, you're probably talking about making 10p, 20p, you know, yeah, pair. Yeah. I don't know, it, it wasn't huge profit, but it was huge volume, a scale. And he opened up uh, his first venture as a solo, as I said, 50 years ago, was Buckingham Vintners. And you're talking about, I think he, it was him, his accountant, very important, um, and his PA as a three-person team. And they were doing, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds yeah. of cases so like you can do the math, you don't have to go, you know, yeah. there was, there was money being made, you yeah. know, and um, that allowed him to fuel vanity projects. And that's when Roberson Wine came into being in 1991. He opened the shop up in High Street Kensington, just towards the Olympia side of High Street Kensington, if you know that area. And it wouldn't have been, you know, that it wasn't a hugely high footfall area, but you know, there was a bit of wealth in the area and he got his mate Richard to design the shop and, even to this day, like the story goes that Yevchevny uh, Cheknikov, who opened up Hedonism Wine, apparently he was inspired by Cliff's original shop to create Hedonism, which obviously has got this incredible interior because Cliff kind of has this, you guys are in the tasting room in the winery. It's this kind yeah. of eclectic, you know, Persian rugs. It's all original, antiques, original artwork, mm, that mm. kind of vibe. Mm. And it's quite a unique vibe you can't like replicate it it's not like ikea scandinavia 100 it's not, it's not yeah, pseudo yeah, yeah. it's not like and that's him he's full of personality uh i don't know if you met him on the day did you guys see him no no, no we no. haven't met cliff no no he's kind of like a vampire buddy <laughs> <laughs> you know but he look, he, does he mind hearing that he's pretty cool he's a, he's a cool cool vampires are cool it's good to be a vampire i think it's a compliment yeah. I'd, I'd like to be called a vampire but yeah like he wears it's pretty cool clothes he's got like uh, he's got a cool vibe. He drives his electric car. You know, he's 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 a very cool cat. He's a cool character, and a bit rock and roll, and a bit esoteric. And I think that that's why you know he's the type of guy who'll just roll the dice and open up an urban winery. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> no historical precedents are. You know, there's not much of a business plan there. It's very impulsive. You know, why not? So, so Roberson Wine founded in 1991 with a shop. Yeah. London Crew, founded in 2013. Yeah, first vintage 2013, 
2012 established, but yeah. 2012 established. Yeah, yeah, yeah but first vintage is 2013. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, how like how does that work? Because as Hugo mentioned on the intro, you guys were the first to do it. Yes. It's a pretty wacky thing to suddenly say, right, let's make wine in the heart of London. I mean, London Crew is 30 seconds from West Brompton Tube Station. Yeah. It doesn't really get that much more central from a winemaking perspective. How do you fund it? How do you find a space? How do you come up with the idea? Or is it just all part of this craziness that Cliff is and it somehow works? Like, that's explain a, it to us. That's exactly like it is. I mean, re- you know, retrospect is, you know, 2020 vision and we can kind of go, oh yeah, there was a plan and a strategy, but let's be clear here, guys, it was absolutely you no know, plan or strategy. <laughs> it is at all. This is very... I'll, I'll, I'll cross that uh, uh, question off my list. Yeah, this, yeah. Is, a, this is very <laughs> emotional. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be looking at two strategists here. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say the Premier Cruise has exactly got a comprehensive booklet of strategy. But yeah, yeah. Well, I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald who said that like boardrooms are where a lot of good ideas go to die, but not many are made. You know, I think that in life, like this idea that you sit down with a piece of paper and you manifest and you kind of have all. I mean, that doesn't really happen. You know, mm. and I think with Cliff, it was certainly not the case. Mm. I mean, this is a guy who's you know very impulsive. You know that's his nature. He's 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 a, he's a salesman. He sees opportunity and he moves in. And there's definitely you can definitely look at at the business model and kind of go, okay, there is parallels. And I think one thing that we always say to people when we um, have them visit the winery is we do we do remind them that the urban winery is actually a pretty ancient um, concept, um, and we, we we kind of draw comparisons to traditional wine growing regions in France, like. Bone in Burgundy and Bordeaux, whereby farmers would have grown fruit, but they wouldn't have had the equipment to process the fruit. So they would have brought it into an urban area, Bordeaux or Bone, and they would have brought it to, you know, these like negotiations and people would have processed the fruit in an urban area. And that's where the kind of concept is, where you have, you don't have the facility to process your fruits, you're bringing in. And then I think if you go a few hundred years, into the future and you go to the Bay Area of California where a lot of cool ideas seem to happen, something mm-hmm. in the air, something in the water, um, obviously very wealthy uh, area, catchment area, and you've got Napa Valley, uh, a lot of wine enthusiasts, all, all, arguably one of the premium wine cities in the world in San Francisco. Uh, they start to create the modern urban winery, you know, in the Bay Area. And that's a different beast, Um and that's what Cliff modeled his on. Because okay. one of the things that, that Cliff, he's always kept very strong ties with North America and America in general, uh, the, Amer- the Americas rather. And um, he, he has been consistently the top uh, independent specialist importer of uh, American wines. Mm-hmm. And you boys were at Robeson wins loads of awards. Yeah, multi-award kind of winning. Yeah. yeah, they really nailed it. So there's a lot of um, transfer of ideas and Cliff has spent a lot of time on both the East Coast and the West Coast. And I think that idea of the urban winery was born. There was definitely solid foundations for it there. There's some really good examples of good urban wineries that work really well. And, you know, but by density, they have the most, you know, but again, you know, you look at Vienna as urban wineries, you know, and, and, and just historically, they were producing wine in an urban area and there's all other parts of the world. Now, now there's urban wineries popping up everywhere. More on the California Bay Area model. And what the Bay Area model is, is it's got to do more than just process fruit for, you know, uh, the small window of the year, you know, because you can't just wait on fermenting wine and have a business model. You need cash flow. So events is the way that you make money. 
And that's really, for a successful urban winery, it should be about 80% of your revenue, obviously, depending on the scale mm-hmm. of your operation. <clears throat> but you you guys, um, you know, obviously you were saying you run loads of events. Mm. For example, Hugo and I went to one of your tastings, which is where we actually met you. Yeah. Uh, that would have been, yeah, last month. And it's such, a, such an amazing setup because essentially the tasting's happening in the winery yeah. and you're surrounded by, you know, all the fermentation tanks, the vats, barrels, et cetera, et cetera, with tables of wine and, yeah, cheese and charcuterie, yeah. and someone like yourself sort of running the whole show on yeah. the background, you know, look, looking after us. Yeah, well, I think it, for me, it was it was funny when I first joined London Crew. Obviously, you know, you're looking at the kind of post pandemic. Obviously, not a lot of social distancing, not a lot of events. But I looked at the space, and I know that they were doing a lot of their tastings offsite, and they felt that they had to go to Mayfair in order to get people in. And I said, "Look, guys, you're missing a point. You're." Mi- you have the perfect DNA here to create something really special that no one else really has in London. You know, as you mentioned earlier, we started the trend. There's now Black Books and Vagabond and Renegade, mm. but no one really has the balance that we have. They don't have an established historical wine merchant. They don't have a tasting room, which looks like something out of a chateau mm. in Bordeaux. And they don't have yeah, a state-of-the-art wine facility space that, is as flexible as ours. Yeah. So the first thing I did is um, I got my mate Ben uh, Sidel, uh, who's an artist, to create the mural on the outside. That used to just be a pretty bland black wall. So the the big grape mural. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's put it in just to kind of establish it as uh, give it some a bit of a sense as theatre and stage. You know, when you walk in, and then worked on the merchandise as well. So all the kind of grape squish stuff to make it more like urban and appealing. So. My early work was branding and marketing and events, you know, and I said to the consumer team, you know, we can actually, we should be inviting our guests here to this space to do the Robertson Wine Consumer Events. We've had great success with them. We've done Beaujolais events. We've done California Cali crew events. We've brought in DJs, mm. you know, with West Coast playlists and tacos and, oh, let, you know. Let us know when that's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll be down. Yeah, yeah. We haven't actually discussed much actual winemaking. Yeah. Mm. A a, a question that um, just I had is that how would you summarize sort of your overall or or London Crew's like overall sort of philosophy and approach to to both like viticulture and winemaking? Yeah, sure. What sort of principles do you guys die on? Yeah. So, I mean, quality and innovation, I think, are the two things that we would look for. I, I, I feel Alex's philosophy, he's worked in, you know, some traditional wine growing areas but he has an affinity for cool climate and that's what's brought him here so he's excited by regions in a world like tasmania that we touched on earlier um, he's excited by canada he's excited by oregon washington and maybe cooler uh, areas within uh, continental europe and i think we always say it's always about embracing what we are and not trying to emulate, emulate and replicate it's human nature to do so right everyone always you know you stand on the shoulder of giants and you're always looking to see what other people do and i but i i think if you do that too rigidly you kind of maybe lose a bit of essence and there's no point in trying to claim that you know you know we, we don't have 1200 indigenous grape varieties like they do in italy and there's no trying there's no trying to pretend we're not greece we're not you know so I, I think for us, it's it, one of our 
key points is just embracing acidity, you know. And acidity is a word that sommeliers don't like to use, but winemakers love to use. And acidity is one of these key structural factors that make, are so integral to how a wine is made and, and, and how a wine can live and evolve and how wine interplays. Because ultimately you want it to play with food and we always make wine for food as well and make that really clear I mean, when i introduce wine i'm always talking about how it works with food uh, and again that comes back to what we were saying earlier about our our own sensory journeys alex is a huge foodie don't like to use that word but he loves his, loves his cooking and i think we've always uh, had food in, in in our mind when we're making wine other people don't there is certain wine brands out there where it's all about the wine and you don't want to detract from it. And there's certain, and I'm not, you know, I, 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 I love some of those wines as well, but for us quality, you know, we, we will not make wine from bad fruit. We'll never compromise. And we've made a commitment to that by Cliff purchased uh, our own vineyard this year. And that, that's, that shows the commitment that we have. The philosophy before was to handpick the best fruit from any given part of the country in any given year which is fantastic in a cool climate area where there is a lot of variations. It gives us, uh, when we're doing the winemaking process, a lot more to play with because you can have disease pressure maybe in Devon and it's Essex is fine or mm. vice versa. Or we can go down to West Sussex. And Alex is honed in on West Sussex consistently as the area for him, which he feels he can get the best quality fruit. And that's what when Alex informed Cliff. And Cliff found a vineyard and, Alex went and assessed it and we decided to go ahead with it. It's 20,000 vines planted mainly with Pinot Noir Picasso. Um, it's also got a little bit of uh, Burgundian clones and a little bit of Bacchus and Pinot Gris. And they're the wines we were making in our range. So it was just a perfect fit for the size right next door to Balney. Uh, so we could use some of the contracting and facilities that they have together mm-hmm. to work on it. But primarily... When it comes to winemaking, you really want to have control over the whole process. And I think one of the things maybe that Alex, you know, and, and London crew, whenever you don't own your own winery, the rest of the wine scene may view you as slightly inferior or, you know, there's always this kind of like, oh, well, you know, they're buying fruit, you know, mm, and mm. even though we were heavily involved from bud break all the way through, we tend to commercially <clears throat> have deals. Like we're, we're, we, we will lock in fruit buying for three to five years. It's only good business practice to do so. So, you know, Alex is down there assessing everything in the vineyard. So this idea that, you know, I think it's easy to think people can't get it into their head that you're in an urban area and you're, you're detached. They they, they don't, they can't really figure it out and, mm. they, and they get like a bit confused about it. But, you know, realistically, like if you're in a commercial wine producing area in Australia, you sometimes you drive five, six hours from where you pick the fruit to where you process it. And they've got real problems with heat over there. It's not like we've got that problem in the UK. So we're 50 miles from our vineyard. And this year we're producing fruit from our vineyard, 10 ton of it and 10 ton from other areas. So half our production is going to come from that fruit. And it's going to make the most quality wine that we've, the best quality wine we've ever made, without a doubt. We're able to... Extra, we've extracted heavier uh, on the red. We've done more pump overs. We're getting much more phenolics out of it. We're going to use a bit of the new oak barrels that we got to create more depth and texture. And our boss, Cliff, has given us the objective of creating the best red wine, Pinot Noir, in this country. And that's what we're going to do. Oy. <laughs> I like that. That's, that's ambition. Bold, that's bold ambition. ambition. 
Before we move on uh, to the Pinot Noir, um, Ben and I have just or previously poured ourselves um, a glass of the second wine that we're going to try today, uh, which is the London Cruise Chardonnay, again, the vintage 2022. Um, do you want to just tell us a tiny bit about that? Chardonnay, yeah. So this is, as you can taste it, we kind of describe it as Chablis on steroids. Um, bracing acidity. Um, the good thing is we've been, yeah, seated here for about a half an hour and you've used decent glasses to kind of open it up. Um, mm. Go yeah. The, it does need certainly to, bracing acidity. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And that's, and, and look, that's what we are. You know, yeah. there's no shine away from that. We're not deacidifying. We're not, you know, we're not putting this through uh, lots of processes to try and soften out that, you know, uh, it, it is what it is. You've got to embrace it. Um, well, it's, yeah, we're lucky. We're, I mean, we're both, Riesling is one of our favorite grapes. We love, you know, we love acidity on our wines. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to make still Chardonnay in this country and it takes skill. But I think it also, you have to be aware and you have to kind of full disclaimer when you're t- talking to the consumer, like this isn't going to taste like other chardonnay examples that they'll find well, i'll tell you what you don't i mean just from my perspective i think it's really really delicious mm. and actually i mean i do really like acidity in wine yeah uh, so this sort of thing, yeah hugo's particular acid nut yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this, this, this stuff does work for me but do you know what it's nice you still get that slight richness at the end which like kind of coats your mouth where you can taste perhaps i don't know if it's aged in barrel or yeah you got, oak is key with it yeah. definitely in the process microoxidation yeah the... yeah and it's a, such a key component and i think people again the general public and it's not it's it's i think this, we need to demystify these things it's not it's a vessel that we use yeah. to put it in it, it it happens to make 300 bottles of wine it's a good size it's easy to play but there's a reason why it's stood through the ages but the, we're not chasing like a uh, big rich kind of heavy <clears throat> buttery kind of oak you know mm. one of the things with the cool climate stage is you kind of have to steer steer away from 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 that side of it and i think we're looking at uh, the wine you want to create something which is ple- pleasurable but i would also stress like we don't sit and we're sitting here today you haven't provided any cheese and charcuterie for me sorry ne- um, next time next time <laughs> but um we're drinking it on its own, but I generally wouldn't recommend doing this. We're doing it for the purposes of anal- analysis, but like uh, this isn't this isn't like a Premier Cru, uh, you know, Coulier Montrachet or mm. Chablis or you know, we're, this is a wine which we have placed on the table. This is a wine which you'll put into a carafe and decant it if you know if you've got the time and serve it up with some nice food, some fish dishes, you know, turbot, lobster, brown butter sauces. Nice samphire, some new potatoes, stuff like that. You know, this is this is what it's about. And I'm looking in, forward to coming around to yours for this. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be on the menu. Some turbo and uh, beurre blanc and some potatoes. But yeah, I mean, um, our fish and chips. Let's go. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. we can democratize. Very, it very happy with that as well. Yeah, yeah. For us, I think if you look at the structural integrity of the wine and what this wine offers compared to the Bacchus, it's superior um, in in how it's designed and and how it will age and that's the key thing not all wines are obviously made for aging and certainly the cool climate kind of styles that we make with the lower extractions on the red and the pristine cool ferments that we have we're not really trying chasing you know ageability you know we're but this wine will evolve and you know as i said three to five it'll be peaking uh, as Mm. drinking experience and um it's a really well-made wine that's testament to you know alex is very 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 skilled 
in his yeast selection and, and obviously when to harvest. Yeah. And you're, you're already starting to get into uh, some of the challenges about making wine in England. And it's been super, super interesting. I guess one of the striking things just in front of us is that all three of the wines we're going to try today are still, mm. uh, and they're all English. Um, what was sort of the decision to go down the route of still wine? I think most people, when they think of English wine, they think of sparkling wine uh, produced by some of the bigger names like Nightimber, uh, Gusborne, uh, whichever one you sort of want to gravitate towards. You guys have done still wine. What are some of the specific challenges with still wine? And, and you know, why have you guys gone down that route? Yeah, it's a good question. And look, I think I don't, I, I don't point fingers that it, we're very lucky to <clears throat> be in a country where there's been such investment put into the wine industry. And you know, take my hat off and I really admire these big brands like Night Timber, Gosborne, Hush Eat This Day, Balfour, and so on, who are now becoming household names and out competing, you know, champagne at their own game and so on. It's important, you know, it's the sparkling wine industry is hugely important to this scene. Uh, it represents 68% of the planted fruit. Um, in terms of, you know, I'm not going to go too much too into the identity, you know, what what is the true identity of it? Because these, let's be clear, these are champagne clones. You know, these are using often champagne yeasts, uh, using champagne techniques and all the dry goods and equipment come from France as well, you know. I mean that's that's a, that's just the way it is. It's 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 a commercial decision. I think it makes sense for Night Timber and Gosborne and the likes to chase that and to follow it and to do you know they are pushing the bar. But you know Alex is honest about it and you know and I think uh, I'm not going to quote him directly, but I mean pretty close. He said, he said he'd rather bang his head against the wall or. You know, not go as far as slit his wrist, but I think (laughs) working in it, working in English wine, sparkling wine, or or making champagne is pretty boring if you're if if you're not into it. It's a it's a recipe, and we always liken it to like a souffle. You know, you can try and make a souffle a different way, but it's not going to be a souffle. You Mm. follow a strict recipe and process when you make traditional method sparkling wine, and it goes down to every detail from you know canopy management harvesting how the, the acidity levels the fruit your dosages everything is is following something and there is if you're it's like being in the kitchen and you had to make a souffle every you know mm. and that, that was what you were doing there's no room for that sensory decision making whenever the fruit comes in and goes oh this fruit will actually probably be better to make a still wine or you know, let's extract this fruit or let's do throw in some 5% whole bunch and see what that, mm. let's throw a bit of that in the concrete egg and let's try a bit of that in oak. You know, you can't, there's none of that journey happening with sparkling wine. If anything, sparkling wine is determined to create a, it's almost like a Coca-Cola. Like you want that house recipe, that house style. That's what, what they do. One of the best paid jobs in the wine industry is a chef de cave working for a Grand Marc Champagne house. And you literally will have, you know, they don't own their own vineyards. They buy in fruit, but they'll have all their different cuvées and they'll blend it and they'll get their Moet non-vintage mm-hmm. flavor. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're chasing. And I think, you know, it's heavily mechanized, it's all gyro palettes and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I just think for us, it wasn't really, we didn't have the capital and the investment. We didn't really have, and we didn't have the will. Mm. <laughs> I was going to say, it doesn't sound like that's kind of aligned with the spirit, ethos, philosophy. No. No. Um, and you know what you were saying about you know it being a sensory 
process. Yeah. And go back to Cliff and go back to what he's about. Yeah. He, he's not in a straitjacket. He's not a recipe follow kind of guy. He's that guy in the kitchen who'll just throw in that bit of saffron or maybe yeah. a bit of turmeric and see what happens and, you know, roast that down a bit longer. And he, I think like we, we, that's, it goes back to, we, we follow his leadership and we, he gives us, he's given Alex a carte blanche to make the best wines. And Alex believes that this is the route to go. And also, and I'll say this, and it's pretty bold, but I also feel like... That be bold, Aaron. Be, That's what yeah. we like. That's what we like. Go <laughs> I, for it. Go I for just it. think aping champagne, like to that level, mm-hmm. is to me, we're probably losing out on a bit of an identity opportunity. Well, I want to... Actually, this, you've, teed, <laughs> you've teed up uh, something that I really wanted to discuss with you. Um, so I guess just a little bit of context for listeners. Like one of the more sort of controversial things that's happened uh, in English wine of late is um, there's been a sort of movement to sort of define and standardise what English wine actually is. And I guess the most noteworthy attempt at that was to create Sussex as a PDO, um, which essentially is, you know, for anyone who doesn't understand weird wine terminology, um, is essentially making it like a wine region unto itself, um, similar to how Bordeaux is an appellation in France. You can correct me if I've sort of got that wrong. Um, But, um, and, and what comes with that is then there are certain rules and regulations you have to adhere to uh, in order to call your wine a Sussex. So for example, if you want to make a sparkling wine at Sussex, it has to be followed via the champagne method. I guess you've already sort of given your cards away, but what's sort of your opinion on this movement? On the one hand, human nature, we have to categorize everything. I think ultimately we will. Champagne wouldn't be champagne if someone didn't decide to call it on, you know, an appellation. And yeah, these agricultural bodies, which when you're in a new world environment, which isn't bound by tradition of, you know, six, seven generations and centuries of tradition, you kind of look upon them with, you know, maybe a bit of envy and, you know, that they can sell uh, history because we all value history. And we all put it that, you know, that's why the 1855 classification can have Chateau Margaux and Lafitte at the price that they do. They've retained a value in the market because of the history, because of the prestige. But I do feel like the Appalachian Origin Control and these agricultural bodies can become straight jackets. And, and, and after maybe five generations, you know, if you're born into a Burgundian family or a Champagne family or Bordelais family, and you have to use the same grape varieties and the same mix and you have to use the same tank and the same indigenous yeast and this and that. Yeah, where's the innovation in it? Like, where's the serendipity? Where's the mistake? Where's the new thing going to be found? You know, it's... I can guarantee it's not going to happen in Bollinger. You know, I can guarantee it's not going to happen in Chateau Margaux. So, you know, I, I think that you lose out on some spirit and, and, and a sense of what maybe losing out on what a, a crucial part of, of evolution and development. And when you're in a new, very new nascent wine uh, region like the UK, I think it's really important that you don't straightjack it yourself early on in the script because a you're going to deter a lot of the free spirit thinkers. You know, uh, a lot of our peers in the industry and some of the people I value most in English wine scene, they're not English. You know, it's a melting pot of people coming from all over the world. But that that's not a I don't mean that as a like a statement of nationalism or jingoism. It just happens to be that it's an exciting place to come. Dermot Sugru, the winemaker that I mentioned earlier, he's, he happens to be Irish and his wife is Polish. Um, our friend down 
in Black Books, Sergio, who I think is one of the best winemakers in the country, is American. You know, so, I mean, there's people coming in from all over the world and a lot of the people you meet come from all over the world and come from different parts of England as well. And I think that that excitement is there, you know, because of the fact that they can do, they're not bound by these strict rules. And a lot of them study in strict areas, you know, study in Piemont, study in Marseille, learn those strict rules, a bit bit like haute cuisine. You know, you can learn your strict, you know, you, you kind of have to learn the rule book, I think. And you can do that. But then I think in order to create something fresh, you have to be able to rip that book up and, and write your own kind of script. And maybe I think there's a bigger opportunity. I would embrace that side of the what the UK can do. I'd, like, I'd say that's a hugely balanced answer. I thought, when you said you were going to be bold, I thought you were going to say something <laughs> wild. But the thing is, I, I kind of agree. You know, There's good examples across the world where rules and regulations, appellations have improved average quality. Mm. but just a general personal sense is that it's come a bit early for English wine. And actually there's a lot of innovation that still needs to happen to create the best of British that we don't know. What what are sort of the cool innovations you guys have got going on at London crew? What, what are you, where, where are you pushing the limit the hardest? Well, we, we, we have a single varietal Reichensteiner, which you can buy in the bottle, which is pretty cool. I don't think anyone's ever had Reichensteiner or treated Reichensteiner with such respect that they would just put it into a bottle in its own right. Uh, we've made the canned wines with uh, Ortega and Reichensteiner blends. We've made like different pet nats, method ancestral, skin contacts, fermented in eggs. And we, you know, we, we play around with commercial yeast strains as well. You know, if we want to get a different expression out of our Bacchus, we'll vinify it in a separate tank and throw in something a bit more tropical fruit to try and bring it into a different wheelhouse. And yeah, just mix things up. I think one of the exciting things, and this is a key thing, and this is something I feel is hugely important for the wine world, is we have to get away. And I know today is not the best example because we've got Pinot Noir and Chardonnay on the table. Technically, our Pinot Noir that you're drinking is Frubegunder. It's actually Precoce, so it's a, it's a clone. Okay. But, but, I mean, I think my biggest gripe is the dominance of the, the big, big five. Um. <laughs> That's something that I frustrates me. The, the big five: Cabernet being, Sauvignon, yeah. <laughs> Merlot, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. And the thing that amazes me is there's like ten thousand grape varieties, right? And as I said earlier, you've got places like Greece and Georgia and Italy alone with over a thousand indigenous grape varieties. You know, whoa, the the dominance of those. It's a, it, it's like I I just find it a, a uh, it's a first it's a frustration to me and the fact that like we educate people all the time in 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 the winery and we're often the first point of contact that they've ever had and yeah it's very difficult to get people to name more than five grape varieties mm. you know it is and it's because we continue to see the same ones in the market and i think for me i would there's obviously reasons things are dominate dominant and obviously commercial regions like California is where it is because it's made commercial decisions to plant certain grape varieties. But I do think that with the advancements in technology and the shared ideas that we have now, the world is a smaller place. You know, the world we can share, we can move. And maybe an advantage of that is to actually explore, uh, you know, different um, grape varieties. And it might be controversial because a lot of people were 
are, are critical of the early pioneers of English wine for using Germanic grapes that no one heard of and they're not commercial. And I don't like Ortega or Madeleine Langevin and I don't like this and I don't like that. And, you know, but I, I actually think, you know, I, I'm, I think it was probably the right decision, you know, to go for grape varieties that were actually more adapted to a cooler climate and that weren't maybe the sexiest ones like, yeah, having Reichensteiner on the label, it doesn't really sell itself. <laughs> it doesn't jump off uh, our website. Um, but it, it's an interesting uh, grape to work with and it's interesting to explore. And I would, you know, um, I recently did the, when I was in Bordeaux, I went to the Cité du Vin, the big museum that they've got there on, on wine. And it really, it, it's great to be in an environment where they really showcase all of the different grape varieties and and. And, you know, when you see it up in a museum setting where you actually, it's not just in a book or doing research online and you realize just how many different raw ingredients there are out there to play with. Mm. And the chefs that excite me, you know, look at the Nordic new wave, Noma, whenever people moved away from, you know what, we don't need to use lemons and everything and tomatoes. You know, why don't we use what's, a, what's available to us in the northern kind of uh, parts of Europe or any red zeppi led that charge and went on to create modern British, you know, followed that and some great cuisine. And then you've got people, uh, is it Alex Atelier, the guy down in South America, who's kind of going out into the Amazon and coming out with all these new produce from, that's exciting to me, you know, and commercial grape production, there's limitations. There's a lot of decision-making, which is done, you know, financially, but I would love to see more of the big five, pushed aside we're, we're never going to in our lifetime we'll be dead and buried pushing up the grapes there's no, we're not going to make Cabernet Sauvignon here no matter what I don't care what they say Merlot's not going to ripen either you know so I think there's certain things we won't be able to do anyway because of our climate but I would I would say that I would I would be encouraged to see people maybe diversifying the portfolio a bit trying new things being experimental going off script different techniques just you know yeah just yeah highlighting what you can do in the cellar mm. and maybe through that we'll make mistakes for sure is it going to be a mistake yeah we're going to make some god-awful wine sure but maybe through that process there's going to be something with a unique identity that comes out of that and that would excite me i think that's probably the most exciting thing for english wine so speaking of speaking of local wines we've got <coughs> a final wine for the show uh, in front of us i don't know if you guys would call it the jewel in the crown but it's certainly cliff's challenge to you which was to make the best English Pinot Noir. Um, that's what we've got in front of us, uh, London Cruise Pinot Noir 2022. Uh, ben and I have just had a sniff and yeah, it's really, really delicious. Um, just talk us through with it and then I, I, I suggest we wrap. <laughs> yeah, this is... Um, I'll get my so mic light back in. in uh, I don't know if viewers probably not going to be able to see this, but it's so light in colour. Delicate. Yeah, I mean, whenever you're analysing wine, we always use the eye first and yeah, this, they, you know, in terms of opacity, if you were to put this over a sheet of paper like you have mm. there, Ben, you can read right through. Like there's full clarity. Um, it's bright. It's almost in some countries they'd probably call it a rose, let's be honest. But um we're in England and we can call it uh, a red wine. This uh, year was challenging uh, for us. And um we just went with what we got and decided that we would do a lower extraction. So typically, whenever you're making red wine, you'll uh, you'll you'll basically destem it. When you take it off the stems, you're left with a lovely kind of caviar of of, of fruit and um, 
you'll start your fermentation process by putting that into a tank. We use uh, Italian cement, 3,000 kind of liter tanks with a beautiful depth to them. And we'd put it in and we'd start the fermentation process. Malolactic will kick through at some point naturally and it'll soften out the acids. And the key thing is what in wine is the protective cap on the top. So red wine obviously is sitting in contact with the skins. It forms a cap. The yeast produce CO2, which kind of float that cap up to the top, as well as the fact that there's density in it. It floats on the top. And um, if you're trying to extract, not like this one, if you want to extract uh, color, um, all the cyanin is in the skins. So you want to pump over. And pump over is a base. It's kind of like a percolator or it's... Um, for to describe it, you have your ta- you have you'd have a tank a vessel, and you'd have a, a hole in the bottom of the tank on the ground level. And you put a pipe in that, and then it's a closed loop system. You you bring the pipe back up through a pump into the top of the hole at the top of the tank, which is about ten foot off the ground. And you turn the pump on, and you draw liquid from the ground level over the top of the cap, and you keep the cap moist, and that protects the wine from oxidation. And also when you do that pump over, depending on how aggressive, it's got paysage in French, depending on how aggressively you do that, you extract tannin and color. And we kind of liken it to, it's like a tea bag. You know, you kind of sit your tea bag in, pump over is like squeezing it, pushing it down and putting liquid over or basting or anything like that. And um, with this wine, everything was just very hands off. And it, we just didn't chase it. We didn't push it. We didn't force it. Um, when you do the pump overs, it's, it can be quite aggressive. So we were a bit gentle with it. We, we punched downs. We were very low on the extraction. And then we racked it off and put it into barrel. And we actually used for the first time a really amazing French uh, barrel maker called Radu. And they kind of balanced perfectly ancient practices of, uh, you know, they harvest some wonderful oak from ancient French forests. But they use like modern laser cutting techniques and seasoning techniques as well. So these steams and stuff and really cool preparation. And these were 500 uh, liters. So some people call that a demi mood. Typically mm-hmm. we would use the 228 liter, which is a Burgundian barrel. Obviously the more surface area, uh, the, the smaller the barrel, the more contact it is with the, with the, with the wood, the bigger the barrel, the less and so on. <coughs> so this was the first time we've ever used uh, new new oak in 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 the in the UK with it. But it was a we, you you buy your oak barrels like you order a steak, like you can have it like <laughs> like you can have it slightly charred. You can it's have quite it a good, uh, well. Yeah, it's quite yeah, a good, yeah. good comparison actually. Yeah, so we went we went for a pretty light char on it, so it's not like a big mouth of wood in your in your and and it, yeah, I think again micro oxidation, and it just showed really good character. The yeast selection, it was kind of. In the beginning phase of the ferment, you have beautiful like red currant, red fruit, very strawberry and like distinctly English strawberry. And then it kind of moves us into a light cherry kind of uh, flavors. And then after the, um, you know, the time in oak, it was in barrel, racked it off and it was sitting in the tasting room on the oak. You're starting to get more mushroom um, aromats and just those kind of tertiary flavor profiles that, you know, but. It came out and we were, you know, use a wine thief, you know, you stick the glass in, you pull out, you suck out the wine and we were looking at the color and yeah, it was just really pretty and uh, really appealing and, and kind of in vogue, you know, this is kind of in, you know, if you go to Sager and Wild or mm. some noble rot, you'll see a kind of few of these <clears throat> lighter style truth. So, you know, it's kind of wines that are coming through and 
it was kind of on trend. And and then, as I said earlier, when we were introing the wine, like it's something that you can have. It's worked really well in restaurant environments because it's so light. The tannins are almost not there. And that means tannins are hard to pair with food. So it works really, really well um, with with dishes that would normally be off this off the table for red wine. So if anyone wanted to sit down and have lunch and just get order one bottle of wine between a group, you know, and you're having as I think, starters and some mains and some dessert, this wine can kind of take it all. Look, I think that'll, you know, that kind of that kind of does us for today. We've covered a lot of ground. Um and I think, you know, from Hugo and I, we just want to say thank you to you for coming on the show, for sharing your story, sharing the story of London Crew. Um and I think to to our listeners you know, London Crew is definitely worth a visit. They're based in West Brompton, um, super easy to get to, and it's really, really cool. So please do check them out. Um, all the wines today, the Bacchus, the Chardonnay, and the Pinot Noir, we'll be posting the links to uh, those wines in the description of the episode, as well as a link to London Crew's website. So if you would like to buy them, please get them there. If you enjoyed our episode, please subscribe to our socials. We're at the Premier Crew across YouTube, Instagram, Spotify, Apple, wherever you're listening to us. And I think. That's sort of it for today. Aaron, thank you so much again and welcome to the Premier Crew.